edition of Quintessentially Queer. I am your host, George Rallis, yet once again. Yes. And we've gathered here today to talk a bit about the fucking obvious, to be quite honest. We're going to do things a little bit differently today because we have a very, very special guest today that is... I am the guest today. I decided to do this alone, primarily, because, uh, first of all, this is like my research. Um, and second of all, I would like to keep the guests um, a bit um, isolated in terms of, I want them to talk about their art particularly, right? I don't want to put anyone in an uncomfortable situation, nor do I want to make anyone um, claim things or state things that might necessarily backfire to them. For me, I don't give a fuck. Come for me, bitch. I'll wait for you and I'll cut you. So I want to give a disclaimer from the beginning, right? If you are um, a one-dimensional fascist, bigot, homophobe, sexist, racist, and any other form of asshole, then I guess this podcast is primarily for you, to be quite honest, because it would really, really fucking help you to douche a little bit and get your head out of the fucking gutter. So, uh, that song that we just heard too, that we just heard was like, This is America by Jaldish Gambino. Watch the video clip for those of you that haven't. It's fucking sick. And it's so current right now. It couldn't be more accurate, really. However, um, in case you've been living under a rock this past period, um, there is a pandemic going on. And no, bitch, I'm not talking about fucking Corona. She's done. Well, she's not really done, but you hear what I'm saying. I'm talking about the racial genocide that's been happening um, in America and actually all around the world. But right now in the United States is really getting out of fucking hand, bitch. Um, everything was ignited basically with the murder of George Floyd. And ever since then, it's been like fucking Pandora's box opened, bitch. It's like grinder with no tops, honestly, though. But um, I've gotten a lot of conversations in the last couple of weeks 
from friends to family, from calling out collabs to calling out bars to fighting with people in my DMs and to pushing fuckboys away because they're so fucking politically ignorant. Honey, it's your fucking responsibility to be more ethical than the society you were brought up in. And if you don't keep on pushing that agenda, then I am sorry, but what the fuck are you doing here? Genuinely, though. I've called a lot of people, actually, in the last couple of weeks. And um, I've gotten a lot of heated um, situations. But I want to clarify a few things before we actually proceed, right? Um, When someone calls you out, when someone shares a piece of their mind, first of all, you should be grateful, okay? Because, um, I mean, I, I will talk about myself, and I think a lot of you might resonate with this. But if I actually waste a fucking time to talk to you and get in an argument with you, then that means that I fucking care. So honestly, though, don't take it that personal, babes. Like, it's not a personal attack, bitch. No one's fucking judging your whole idiosyncrasy as a person, nor your whole existence of being. Like, genuinely, though, I act like an asshole. I act like a bitch. I act super kind, and I act super polite. Like, people should not be minimized to one fucking adjective when they're entire libraries. So... If I am calling you out on a specific thing and I say that you're ignorant, stupid, or just hateful, then bitch, don't take it that personally. What you should do is just fucking listen and then from that point onwards, try and push yourself in growth, right? And actually, this is what the fucking fight is about. That people want to limit people in one fucking adjective, that of non-human. And people are fucking tired with it, right? Anyway... Let's move a little bit away from my own personal thing, right? So, I guess the point overall, right, would be to recognize the current conditions in ways that um, could ultimately be transformative rather than be performing victim-blaming. You know, don't take it that personal, babes, really. No one's judging you, not at all, I swear, trust me. Genuinely, just admit that you might be wrong or that your opinion might be uninformed, and no one's gonna take it, no one's gonna hold it accountable for you. No one, really. Struggles, though, are never really separated from the present, and that's what we all know, you know. White people, though, are never, ever taught their history. What we leave out of conversations is actually usually whiteness. We talk about gay rights, we talk about black rights, we talk about, like, all these minorities, but no one really ever fucking addresses whiteness, and I think that's where the problem lies, right? I mean, in whiteness. We think, and I actually have committed this fallacy myself, uh, that because I personally am queer, for example, I can only talk for queer matters, right? Firstly, and this is another disclaimer, I am not the representative of anyone but myself. However... I will always, always fucking represent the idea that there is no equality until we're all fucking equal. Black lives is a queer matter. Trans lives is a queer matter. Refugee lives is a queer matter. Female lives is a queer matter. Sex worker lives is a queer matter. Like, grow. Intersectionality. Learn it, live it, love it. We don't understand when we're learning about our struggles and tribulations and the efforts for liberation, basically, when we're analyzing all these minority um, struggles anyway. What are they trying to run away from? Who are they struggling from? And this is what I mean by we're living out whiteness. You know, the point right now is not necessarily to talk about black struggle. No one can fucking speak about black struggle besides black people. 
Bitch, you never went through it. The point is not to sympathize with these people. The point is to unveil the power structures and the hierarchies that actually are oppressing these people. AKA, let's talk about whiteness. What are you struggling from? And who are you trying to be liberated from? We are killing people of color. We are killing trans people. We are killing queer people, non-binary people, and women. We are separated and unequal by race primarily. And then then everything else follows. Like sexuality and like gender. As a result, white people are insulated by racial stress in this way. And we feel like we're of course worthy of, of this alleviation of racial stress. What do you mean? By the way... Uh, in case you don't know White Fragility by uh, Robin D'Angelo, get into her, she's fucking sick. Like, honestly, though. Anyway, white people, by being racially free in a society that we actually dominate, um, they, we, I mean, I don't really identify as white personally, but I'm going to use we for the sake of the, you know, argument. We thus haven't had really to build our racial stamina, you know? A straight white man will never fucking understand the struggle a visibly queer and gender non-conforming person or actually just woman, cisgender woman, the struggle we have to go through by having to think which street to take late at night when we're dressed in a specific way. They will never understand the struggle of hearing a sound behind you and thinking that this is going to be the moment you will get gay bashed only because you're wearing a fucking crop top. This racial stamina, though, and this social stamina, if you ask me, has a deeply engraved sense of superiority that genuinely is so stupid and so superficial that it does not go deeper and it cannot go deeper than the surface, aka the color of your fucking skin or if you're wearing a skirt. The fact that we never had to tackle these things makes us fragile and immature when we're talking about such matters like racism. Simply because, you know, this superiority is so engraved and so lived that any form of association to the structure of racism and its underwirings feels like a direct attack to our moral and ethical whiteness, innocence and superiority. Thus, instantly providing a potential threat and a potential inferiority or potential staining of our pureness. Of course I'm not racist. What are you talking about? In this way... The question of racism is instantly off the table. Of course, I am not a racist. How can I be racist? I'm vegan. I'm gay-friendly. I support. But I'm too sensitive to actually speak up against these things and stand up next to our fucking black brothers and sisters. This, my friend, is a white equilibrium. That's what it fucking is. In this way, this equilibrium, it reinstates our white superiority and unscathedness through white fragility. It is reignited by vulnerability, discomfort, and confrontation. It's not weakness per se, but it's a means of white racial control and the protection of white advantage. You know, white people get so defensive when it might even be suggested that they'd be associated with racism. In any way, actually. I mean, Karen, I'm talking to you, bitch. Doesn't the lack of diversity in your fucking workplace show you a problem? Hmm... Mm -mm. Do you not see how those are the wirings of the system that are getting undone minute by the minute which you empower? The whiter you are, the surer you are that you have nothing to do with racism. 
It trickles down in a way that is dismissible between good and bad people. That's how we fucking see it. People believe that only bad people can be racist. Somehow, due to the individualism and the privilege of isolation that whiteness provides in the West and the Netherlands, white people, especially the non-racist ones, somehow believe that they're beyond socialization and programming or conditioning. Of course I wasn't conditioned into being racist. What do you mean? I have black friends. Because we're given this privilege of choice, we inherently believe that racism is an individual act which expresses a single volition from a person of racial superiority rather than a general level of understanding the world. Most people of the sort would actually label themselves as racially progressive and um, like quite open-minded, actually, you know. These are the people, though, that actually cause the most harm on a daily basis, bitch. Yes, they are. We put all our power in proving that we don't have it, instead of actually putting in the work and the things that we should be doing to fucking alleviate society from the shit we put her in and other people around us. We all have opinions, babe, but they can be uninformed. I always say opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. But unless you ain't no bleach, you better keep it to yourself, because I don't want to see your shit. We see ourselves as unique individuals unaffected by the culture we live in. That's the fucking privilege of choice. That is the privilege of thinking we are over socialization. We think that if we don't see it, it isn't there. We think that if it doesn't happen to us, it isn't there. We use our reactions as a way out. We do not see oppression as a system. We see it as an instance. I didn't punch any black people in my life. Of course I'm not racist. I have never, ever met a white person that doesn't have an opinion on anything, actually on racism primarily, but you know what I mean? White people are definitely fucking opinionated, bitch. That's why they want to speak to the manager all the time. If you think that that is the case, actually, then I dare you, literally, to bring it up next time you're in their company from your fucking white friends. Bring it up. Bring up the topic of racism. Bring up the topic of homophobia. Actually, no. Let's not get to homophobia right now. We're talking about racism at this instance, right? Bring up racism. Make people feel uncomfortable. We should be talking about these fucking things. It's about time we actually start talking about these things, you know? And it's not about being able to use words like intersectionality, like post-structuralism, like systemic racism, even though I don't think systemic racism is too much of a complicated word to be using. But... The point is to dwell in conversation. Social life, though, right, is through this conversation and through connection with one another is quite observable and, you know, quite repetitive. In retrospect, it does not exist in a vacuum somewhere outside of ourselves. No, babes. It does not. We are it. If you think you're outside of it, then, and you have no responsibility over it, then you got another thing coming from you, for you, genuinely though. And that thing that will come for you, bitch, it's gonna come to you when you're at your lowest, when you find yourself within that lower tier of vulnerability that we put black people in, that we put trans folks in, that we put queer people in, that we put women in most of the times. It's that moment where you will realize that actually you're being undone by the fucking system. 
by the scenes that you're being pulled side to side only to realize that there is actually no one next to you or will understand you. Well, if you're a white, heterosexist, cisgendered male, then it would be easier for you, bitch. But we're not talking about you right now. We're trying to educate you if you're listening. Or more likely, we're trying to fucking empower the queer people that are listening and every bitch that wants to hear this shit. So, let's go to a song before I go on a little bit of like a story time. And we're going to Lifeboats by Georgia Smith. I don't know how to fucking pronounce her name, but she's amazing. So, let's get into it. to swim before you get in sometimes you gotta take the plunge just to get in life's not full of shallow and your house ain't full of armbands stay afloat someone might put their arm out to help you i don't know i would if i saw somebody drowning in a sea of self-confusion i want to be the one to try and understand why their tide ain't coming in and the light ain't shining mm. so i do we all fall down if there's a reason we can stay afloat why do we watch them drown We're too selfish in the lifeboats Why do we all fall down? If there's a reason we can stay afloat Why do we watch them drown? Yeah. Uh. So why are all the riches staying afloat? Seen all my brothers drowning even though they knit the boat Okay, so story time bitches For those of you that don't know uh, I mean why would you if you don't know me but like I'm doing the research masters of cultural analysis here at UVA hey bitches, kisses to anyone that might be listening so we had our final uh, a couple of weeks ago actually last week uh, I handed it in mine but we had an outline on the 3rd of May I completely forgot about it bitch I saw like 37 messages in the group chat and was like nope don't get the time for this shit but then at 1 o'clock at night Uh, I saw a message being like, oh, I hope they don't fail us for missing the deadline. And I'm like, oh, fucking heart attack. So I was thinking like, what the fuck am I going to write my fucking final on? I have so much things to talk about. Genuinely, I have a lot of things that I'm like, I'd like to believe of myself as versatile. Mm. But like, there's a lot of things that I'm actually interested in. But I genuinely didn't fucking know how to express what I was feeling right now. To me, writing and creation and expression is something that should be happening in the same way as you wanting to pee or wanting to eat or wanting to drink water. It's something that should come from inside that you need to fulfill. It shouldn't be something that is primarily pragmatic, you know? So at that moment, I was like, holy shit, I'm scared. And I've never been like that before. I take pride in the fact that I'm a control freak because I'm a Virgo, you know? Um, and also I'm queer and OCD, so he's like, bitch, can I get a break? But no, I was like, fuck, man, I'm, a, I'm scared, I'm afraid. So how about I make a conceptual analysis of fear? Ooh, so pretentious. But like, when I formulate an opinion or an argument, right, I always try to be as objectively analytical as possible. For once, 
I decided to use the personal tone in an academic essay since I felt that that would have a differential impact, right? Because I'm talking about myself, essentially. Taking into consideration everything that has been accumulated in my academic uh, repertoire so far and past, a good researcher, in my understanding, and that's what I'm trying to do every time, uses trial and error to fulfill all possible combinations in the most fruitful and productive way possible. I mean, it's a global pandemic, right? And a racial fucking genocide. Research seemed impossible as there was somehow no correlation to the information intake and its ultimate production on a Word document. Like, girl, who the fuck gives a shit about post-structuralism right now when people are dying? You know? Mikabal saw concepts as traveling. Agamben saw it as paradigms. In either scenario, I realized that my research was going around in circles, and so was I. I was having infinite possibilities in front of me, yet not really acknowledging the route of interpretation I wanted to follow. On that note, I realized, as soon as the deadline was actually for closing, that I had been paralyzed by choice and fear, only to see that I was within possibilities of meanings, and this level of, like, I guess, interpretive abstraction... Yeah. While reading Being in Time by Heidegger, Hey Daddy, love you. I stumbled upon this quote about the hermeneutic circle. Quote, It is not to be reduced to the level of a vicious circle, or even of a circle which is merely tolerated. In the circle is hidden a positive possibility of the most primordial kind of knowing, and we genuinely grasp this possibility only when we have understood that our first last and constant task in interpreting is never to allow our forehaving, foresight, and foreconception to be presented to us by fancies and by popular conceptions, but rather to make the scientific theme secure by working out these four structures in terms of the things themselves, aka, bitch, forget what you fucking knew and get with it right now, in the present. On that moment, I realized that I'm actually in a very unique place that I've never been before. Afraid and paralyzed, yet on the same note as everyone else. For once, you know. Proceeding with my research, I was reading Sarah Ahmed's Cultural Politics of Emotions, which is a beautiful book, by the way, in which she states that fear envelops the bodies that feel it, as well as constructs such bodies as enveloped, as contained by it, as if it comes from outside and moves inward. When I noticed these correlations between research, interpretation, fear, and the reality around me, I realized that the connection between all these lies in the motion of its circulation until they are created within oneself and fully realized. In this way, what I argue is that if I use this fear that I was feeling within my arsenal of tools of research and conceptual analysis and cultural analysis, what I may strive for is a deconstruction of emotion, but also interpretation. By realizing that the place in which we base our understandings and our efforts is a pool of vulnerability and fear, then we may use those as a tool of empowerment, not just for philosophical and theoretical thought right now, but also for a clearer understanding of the world at large and its power structures and thus empathy with one another. Fear, my honeys, is as paralyzing of an emotion as it is a fascinating one. Unlike anxiety or distress, 
fear has been thought of cognitively as having a dual nature. This duality is what arguably makes it such an intersecting and culturally suitable discussion point at this moment. Fear is divided in high and low impact. High impact fear is when we're faced with a direct and specific source of fear generation. For example, we encounter such an impact when we face a direct threat to our physical well-being and integrity. Low impact fear is a fear that is implemented within our consciousness by not necessarily what is in front of us, but more so with what could potentially happen. However, the acknowledgement of fear as being dual is what allows its usage in multiple ways. Right? And now, bitch, just imagine all these people that are living in this, like, low hierarchy of oppression, right? Imagine the indirect fear that they're feeling every single time when they're walking down the street. The only difference is that they actually feel it as high impact. Because to us, every fucking person that we see might potentially be something to be afraid of. You know? However... Let's go back a bit into theory, and I'll get to my point in the end. No analysis of fear is as precise in placement than that of object theory. The object's only quality of an object, according to Kristeva, is the fact that it's opposed to the eye. Accordingly, the high-intensity source of fear is always to a specific object or uncertainty. However, what is examined through fear as objected is the externalization of objectifying one's self. You objectify yourself in what you see and then you externalize it. According to Baumeister and Pence, the self is divided in three facets psychologically. The first one, um, what is it? It's the interpersonal, yeah, interpersonal self. It's the most abstract and elusive part in psychological character construction as it actually is the analysis of the emotional psyche of each person and the internal underwirings which trigger the dynamics. Secondly, it's the experience of ref reflexive consciousness, which involves being aware of oneself and constructing knowledge structures about the self, like, on their own, you know? Third and last is the executive function which controls the decisions and actions of the self. The social self is another very, very crucial part of psycho-emotional formation, yet what is drawn now is the internal processes of subjectivation, Subject, subjectivation is the process of becoming a subject, by the way. If we take the interpersonal self, and thus we parallelize fear with a multiplicity of emotions, then the awareness starts from an even previous state, rather than that of the reflexive consciousness. However, if indeed that is the case, then what would happen in order for fear to take over and control the later executive function, what would be then that step would be the process of objection. According to Kristeva, objection is essentially a deep feeling of fear and horror which has such a high impact that would inherently disturb conventional identity and the pre-formulated conceptions one had of it. For example, an extreme moment of objection is when we're faced with a dead body since it objects existence. By realizing the mortal object which, which the self is, what is thus creating this distance between subjective security and objective fear is essentially the realization of our own mortality. We're being objectified. It is the paralyzing fear par excellence. By attempting to make sense of our lives and ourselves, 
What objection does is unveil the fragility of such an effort by throwing us in a place where our familiar meanings are being deconstructed. The mechanism which deconstructs this sense is actually driven by fear. I always say that I've put a lot of effort in constructing a life around me that is primarily mm, made of queer people, super open-minded people, non-racist, etc., etc. And then when I meet someone that actually is a homophobe, I'm like, oh, wow, I forgot how stupid you are. That's why I keep you out of my fucking life. But at that moment, I'm, I'm being objected. I feel objectified. I do feel that this meaning that I have constructed about my life, exactly because I'm afraid of those people, is being deconstructed and objected. Christavadas calls it a sacred configuration. If fear is what cements one's compound as being conjoined to another world, thrown up, driven out, and forfeited from the self. What is reconfigured is the way which we analyze the meaning of the world and of the I. Now, being saturated by fear, perception is frozen at the stage of the reflexive consciousness, yet in a primordial state which is fueled only by fear. This objection cuts one's perception from their objects, the representations, and through loathing the previous realities for being hazy, is now in a phobic state. Such a state reaches its embodiment by the triggering of an emotional impetus that was festering inside but is now externalized. Fear is more apt to occur when a person identifies with the object of pain, of aggression, and then give rise to the negative emotional states, which are conceptualized and paralleled inside. This is why fucking black people are infuriated right now, bitch. You are killing one of them. You are killing them day by day. In addition, Joseph Rivera claimed that the focus on emotional negativity, including fear, is expressed as being pushed out, impelled from within, although this impulsion can be influenced by external cues, making it rage on that note. The phobic state thus of objection is the usage of the preconceptualized, internally deep-rooted fear and externalizing it and specifying it through a specific object, white fucking supremacy. Christavadas argues that when fear is bracketed, then discourse and meaning formation will be restored as ontologically tenable only if it ceaselessly confronts that otherness, a burden that is both repellent and repelled. It's a deep well of memory that is unapproachable and it's also intimate. You dip inside it. That's the object. The question that remains, though, is... Where does the object really stop, you know? But let me stop for a second now. And let's go to If I Ruled the World by Nas and Miss Lauren Hill, fucking queen, and then we'll get back to it. Take me under, I don't know. Imagine 
smoking weed in the street without cops harassing. Imagine going to court with no trial. Lifestyle cruising blue Bahama waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Days are shorter, nights are colder. Feeling like life is over. These snakes strike like a cobra. The world's hot, my son got knocked. Evidently, it's elementary. They want us all gone eventually. Trooping out of state for a plate. Knowledge, if coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing, fashion, designer clothes. Lacing your click up with diamond rolls. Your people's holding dough, no parole, no rubbers. Going raw, imagine law with no undercovers. Just some thoughts for the mind. I take a glimpse into time, watch the blimp read, the world is mine. If I rule the world, imagine that. Okay, that was Nas and Miss Lauren Hill with If I Ruled the World. So let's get back into the object. The object is something that does not respect borders or rules. It's someone who is someone who is in abjection, is someone who is a detract of places, who is separated, situated, and therefore straying instead of getting his own bearings, desirings, belongings, and refusals substantiated. In this way, ontological objection is an arbitrary placement which is as unifying as it is dichotomous. It's a construction of meaning in a way that is always outside of itself due to the removal of the pre-acquired realizations and their replacement with the perception of finitude. Through this movement, what you reach is the state of objection itself. Thus, when one includes their self among such a process, they shall become the scalpel that carries out such separations. It's very powerful. The more one is opposed to it, though, the more the I is being dragged in the space where meaning collapses. This is why we should follow these movements. This is why we should be speaking about these things. We should not be avoiding them, because then we do not think, we do not create meanings, we do not create discourse. By trying to refabricate this objection of meaning to familiarity, the coexistence of fear will cease to exist only to give rise to its absolute takeover, by security itself actually, and thus ultimately conceptual paralysis, and thus ultimately stopping of growth, and thus ultimately just following the fucking system. This is what happens when we try to remove ourselves from any taboo discourse like racism, when we refuse to be afraid, when we refuse to feel uncomfortable. In an ideal world, though, if we indeed let ourselves be afraid, we stray away from the situation by thinking of what could happen, you create the distance between the subject and the object, and thus, you allow for a realization of a new emotional natality. If not, then you shall be either cornered in a specific emotion that is cognitively one-dimensional to you, or even worse, in an emotional guardian knot of always being right and never really listening to what other people are saying or how they feel or ever being challenged. Fear thus places suffering in the place of the eye by situating it and differentiating it away from emotional chaos. It creates an incandescent, unbearable limit between inside and outside, between ego and other. AKA babes, 
Just don't be constipated. When these lines are blurred, then the identity, which we have figured thus far, seems unbearable, as it is unable to bear the newly found perception and meaning that make one go outside of their self to new grounds of subjectivity. When this boundary is shaken, then the narrative is what is challenged first, as that is what is afraid of being lost. The difference between narrative and discourse is that you, as a person, you live your life. You are in your narrative. You feel specific things which are valid, and you are lost within the, the, the unfolding of the events and what is going on. Discourse, though, is when you remove yourself from that narrative and realize after a couple of years that, oh, holy shit, actually, I don't hate my ex that much, even though I might have felt it at the time, like, I don't care right now, you know? And that's you change fucking discourse, because right now you live your life in a specific way. So in this note, when people are telling you that their narrative is that of destruction and of murder, and that is also their discourse, why? Why on fucking hell would you not remove yourself from your own fucking narrative and listen to theirs and their stories? If meaning is continued being formulated within this fear and within objection, then what is shattered is its linearity and its continuation. The narrative thus yields to this crying out when it tends to coincide with the incandescent states of a bound subjectivity that you only have. Objection thus is listening to a crying out theme of suffering, of horror, of murder, and of violence. In other words, when we allow the concept, the perception, and the self to travel in the space that is provided to us, what is created is a parallelization and an understanding that diffuses and destroys our stagnant, meaning constructions of self. And thus, ultimately, white, straight, cis-gendered, heterosexist superiority. If we stop and we do not dwell, then we will not be objected in a space where meaning can run wild. We cannot respect other lives. In this way, what we do, we cover the distance in objection, not with an end point in sight, but more so with the willingness to cover the distance and its fluctuations with ourself traveling to its new sense. We will not change if we don't do that. We will not progress. We will not move in a newly found way of existence that respects every fucking life. I don't understand why it's so difficult. Jesus Christ, you know. On a wider level of interpretation, Kristeva, in Psychoanalysis and the Polis, which is a beautiful uh, text, by the way, argues that there are two forms of interpretation, the psychoanalytic and the political. By recognizing the political implications of the act of interpretation itself, what is recognized is the seeking for one's stability and identity. Thus, Ideally, regardless if it's not always the case, we wish to create a case of symbiosis between the two acts of interpretation, is what you feel and what you're subjected to. However, this symbiosis is ambiguous and difficult since the totalitarian notion of subjectivity usually is threatened by the other. Thus, 
if we follow the same principle as objection politically, then the goal to achieve in an ideal world would be to open up the field of subjectivity in order for the subject to become the producer of the field of interpretation. Well, actually not become, because it already is, but then realize that we are, basically. A.K.A. The meanings that you share are perpetuated in other people's lives. You do affect other people. Needless to say, that on a social level, there is not even an issue that can be solved as easy as following steps. I wish it was. You know, in an age where the old ideologies no longer have such a strong power of motivation, fear is what becomes the most powerful agent in political discourse. The problem that arises is that everyone, bitch, everyone, wishes to see the world at large living in tautology with their own subjectivity. AKA, they want everyone to believe the same things that they do and feel the same way that they do about everything. Thus, what is created is a totalitarian stance on political subjectivity and emotions where those that have the power actually also have the means to apply such an aspiration. In simple terms, those that have the fucking privilege also have the fucking power to dictate to everyone what is right and what is wrong and who is human and who is not. Ultimately, making the Leviathan model that our societies are basically based on become an incognito figure that lives in precariousness and social fear. A precariousness that essentially affects everyone. You know, no one really believes that white people have no problems. No one really believes that white people do not go through discrimination. I mean, one way or another. However, white people should also at some fucking point realize that the fear which they are feeling might be felt differently and strongly by other people and that they might even be causing it. Other people, bitch, are scared on a deeper, more constitutional level. It's political. It's not personal, for fuck's sake. You know? Anyway, getting pissed off right here. <laughs> if arguably, though, okay, this fear is what sets the ground with which precariousness was found upon socially, then accordingly the state is based on the fear of death, right? The reason... Why Hobbes, actually, who's one of the first like political uh, theorists, you <clears throat> uses the natural state, the state which manipulates people, right, as his background, is because through this manipulation of fiction of the natural state, people through fear see this unknown territory, right? Such a state, according to Hobbes, would be characterized as every man for himself, since the natural state is a state of war. What always preoccupies human conception is the struggle for self-preservation, riches, and survival, basically. And that's how we're led to fucking competition, war and loss and hierarchies. However, in the modern-day sovereign society, the natural state is used in a way to implement fear. It's shown as the consequence of not following the sovereign authority and the effect of not having a social structure and hierarchy. With us exchange our predetermined natural state for social security by a sovereign, a supreme power that mediates and sanctions the pact. However, such a manipulation of fear and of sovereign power leads to the exact opposite of security for the mass since there is a hierarchy in security distribution. That hierarchy 
is that which ultimately places minorities at the lowest of the hierarchy of humanity and at the top of the hierarchy of fear and vulnerability. Indeed, the people that constitute the system and distribute security do live secure lives. And I'm talking to you, white man. Yet, in order to always have the wheels turning, what is needed is an application of precarity within the distribution of fear. Governing thus consists of finding the balance between the maximum precarity, which cannot be exactly calculated because we're objected by it. This objection is due to the distance that is created by the fear of losing everything we have with a minimum of safeguarding and security that comforts people and thus ensuring that the mass remains at this threshold, always be working, always be contributing to the system and never really straying away from it. Precarity thus moves beyond the pragmatic one-to-one manipulation that a Leviathan model would describe. It transcends wage employment and domestic security by embracing our whole existence, the body, and the modes of subjectivation. By the way we see the world, you know. It's a constant reminder of the distance we have to cover through objection to the unforeseeable, with the system always pointing back to fear. We cannot catch a fucking break. In this way, What is appropriated and fixated is a one-dimensionality of an internalized fear and risk as being natural, when it is not. You know, the fear and the threat is that by always having a pre-packaged conceptualization of the loss of all security, orientation, and order, and thus fear, the system threatens with the return to the natural order and claiming as its own opposition the void of a known fate, insecurity, and inability for survival. It's telling you that, bitch, if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to be outside of society, and thus you're going to go back to the natural order. You're going to be one man for themselves. As if it isn't already like that, bitch. We're getting fucking killed by police. We're getting killed by the system itself. You know? And this is the reminder that infuriated people at this point, seeing yet another black man being killed in the state's hands. Contrary to the old rule of a domination that demands obedience in exchange for protection, this neoliberal governing that we're all living in right now proceeds primarily through social security insecurity, through regulating the minimum of assurance and security while simultaneously increasing instability. In this way, precariousness refigures our existential understanding of our own subjectivity. It implicates how we are connected, exposed, dependent, and vulnerable to others, and how the state of subjectivity is translated to a shared emotion. It's a privilege that only few can manipulate and profit from. In Laurie's words, she says, Isabel Laurie, great, Because we're constitutionally precarious and hence finite, bodies are dependent on something outside of themselves, on others, on institutions, and on sustained and sustainable environments. So where the fuck are all these institutions and environments when we're asked to be protected? This dependence would arguably function as Kristeva's argument of a dead body 
or Hugo Lofheim's Corner of Fear, who is this cognitive scientist. Like, if you want to get into it, you can, like, I don't know. He's super cool, actually. By being submerged within the social precariousness, the system holds our eyes wide open, forcing us to object ourselves through this fear of insecurity. The system keeps our eyes wide open to witness yet another innocent body being murdered in its own fucking hands. As Laurie argued, the assumption that life, because it is precarious and endangered, because it is exposed to an existential vulnerability, must be, or even could be legally or otherwise entirely protected and secured, is nothing other than a fantasy, and a fantasy of omnipotence. We are not protected. We will never be fully protected. This is why people are rioting. This is why people are writing. This is why people are speaking. This is why people are arguing. This is why people are finally fucking standing up for themselves. The vital part of such an understanding is not to secure our own vulnerability, but more so to realize how this element of fear objects us and keeps us governable through precarization. It's making us go against one another. Fuck that shit. The vital part is not to reverse the hierarchy. It's not to put black people on top or gay people on top or trans people on top. Lol, gay people couldn't be on top even if they wanted to. The vital part, bitch, is to remove those hierarchies and realize that life is not a schema. Life is not a speech. Life is not politics. Life is political, yes, inherently, but it is not politics. Black lives are not politics. Queer lives are not politics. Trans lives are not politics. Refugee lives are not politics. Disabled lives are not politics. They are simple human fucking rights. And if you choose to be a political, then what you are is a human bitch. So what are you doing here? Honestly, though. Brianna Taylor, say her fucking name. George Floyd, say his name. Corinne Gaines, say her name. Eric Garner, say his name. Sandra Blunt, say her name. Michael Brown, say his name. Natasha McKenna, say her name. Tamir Rice, say his name. Yvette Smith, say her name. Say their fucking name. Speak up. It's fucking time. Now, because I'm getting a bit heated up and I also have things to do today, so I don't want to be like fully out there, I will close off this podcast with a poem that I wrote. I had sent to um, a publication and they said that they didn't want to use it because it was a bit too political. However, they did like my queer poems, because bitch queerness is trending, especially if it's not targeted by other forms of language. But before I go into it, it's, uh, I kind of like have to remind you to vote for the UVA uh, elections, the student council, primarily. And also, I uh, urge you to like the podcast page if you're interested in Facebook. We're under Quintessentially Queer. Or follow me on Instagram if you want to hear me rant about other things under Gravity Grave. So this is the poem. It's called The Pronouns of Oppression. I have been told that I'm too much. 
I have been told that I'm too serious, too touchy, too loud, too tiring. That my voice is shrieking for attention in places that cannot hold me. I am not a woman. I am not black. I am not disabled. I am not a refugee. I am not gay. I am not trans. I am the place where all the voices resonate and hold into account the actions that resonate their intonation. I am the void where screams go to shelter their tiresome bodies from the ever-fleeting notion of ignorance. I am able to avoid the looks that penetrate. I'm available for protection, for production as I am consumption. I am the body which is privileged and strong. I am manifest. I am an opinion that cannot count as it is not needed for appraisal. People is uncountable. Numbering day by day. Lengthening humanity minute by the minute. One word at a time. I am whatever you want me to be. As all the spaces withhold me. I am a person with a voice. I am a person who judges and stands up. I am a person that wants to live alongside other people. I am a person that denounces humanity for choosing who is human. Once again, for the bitches in the back, if you think this is nonsense, then watch the world flutter with the music you think is static. The screens are slowly covered by the noise you cannot see. The radios are fluttered with the visuals you're blinded by. The scrolling follow follows through to the next unfamiliar submission. Once again, louder, for the earless muffs that will not speak. Block your ears and block your eyes as your sight is short of the lengths and depths your own perception refuses to show you. Stay where you are. Humanity is moving. The boats are covered and those that are drowning cannot breathe. The unbearable grief of black mothers the untouchable pain of refugee fathers, the unimaginable power of the oppressed, once again stronger for the ones that fall short only to land on their own two feet while others are being kneeled down. If you think progress is violent, if you think fires are extinguishable, if you think humanity is chosen, then extinction isn't far away. Just like the dinosaurs, you shall be nothing more than an objecting memory of fear to those that faced you, disgust to those that feel your reptilian skin creeping up against their own, and awe only to those that want to live in caves with you. The riot girls are coming, and they're black, and they're queer, and they're sexual. They disable your conception of a voice, they are tactile, they are forthright, they're appalling, they're flamboyant. Once again, bigger, bigger for the unapologetic mutes. They are here. And that was it from me. I'm George Rallis. And let's go with one last song that is Changes by Tupac. Kisses.
changes Wake up in the morning and I ask myself It's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch Cops give a damn about a negro Pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a hero Get it back to the kids who the hell cares One less hungry mouth on the welfare First ship him, don't let him deal with brothers Give him guns, step back, watch him kill each other It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead I got love for my brothers, but we can never go nowhere Unless we share with each other we gotta start making changes Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers And that's how we're supposed to be How can the devil take a brother if he's close to me? Uh, I let it go back to when we played as kids But then it changed That's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah